0: It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind my, back to my senses? Welcome,
1: neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host. Amanda O'Fox-Gillespie.
0: It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses?
1: Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk You Radio where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we're talking about leadership. We have author Dina Chachanov joining us today to answer some of my and your questions about leadership. Who and what? makes a leader? Can a great leader be made or are they only born? Can people really be excellent leaders both at home and at work? And what are some of the characteristics of great leaders? Are there practices that will help you develop your leadership skills and so much more? Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, the air, the communities where you live, work and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, the Kla'amen, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked it through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Dina, welcome. It is such an honor to have Uh, a mentor, a friend, an amazing author now, and a leader such as yourself here sitting with me today at the radio station. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, Amanda, I'm so thrilled to be here with you. I'm so thrilled to be here on Cortez. This is really an honor for me too.
1: Okay, so today you are going to guide us in a conversation about leadership. And in this conversation, I am hoping we're going to learn more about you and your roles and your expertise, um, as well as a little bit about why you chose to write a book about leadership, because I would like to recognize for a moment that it takes a great deal of courage to write a book about leadership. Um, And so thank you for that courage. But also, I want to talk a little bit about why else you would decide to take on that role. Mm -hmm. And let me also just say the book out loud. Um, So this is called Homework, and it's how to be a leader in the boardroom and the living room. And I really, really like this title in part because it's so accessible um, uh, and it invites. I feel like people like me, who maybe don't always consider themselves leaders, into this work. So, tell us a little bit about this about this book and why you chose to take on this sort of courageous, labor intensive act
2: of torture. You of mean, torture. Of writing yeah. a book, which is quite, can be a torturous experience. Um, well, the the truth is, I. Turned 60 a few years ago. And I asked myself, so what does that mean? What do I want to do with the 30 years of practice and experience I've had? What does it mean? What can I share with uh, a possible reader, a potential reader, about what I've learned from my clients in the work that I've done? What have they maybe found useful? And How do I take the different parts of my work life that I've turned into a career and share some of the teachings that have been given to me by my incredible clients? What I do for a living, really, is I listen. So my job is to pay 100% attention to everyone that um, I work with, And I have chosen a livelihood that is captivated by how other people live. I'm really interested in how people think and how they feel and how they love and how they work. And I'm always looking for um, meaningful moments that I can share with people in the workplace. And I'm sort of like a relationship junkie. I think that's how I refer to myself. And... In everything that I do, which I'm looking forward to talking about the the different hats that I wear, I sort of am motivated by the concept of therapeutic love, which is really living with a deep respect and caring for the well-being and the total acceptance of whoever shows up in my world and really wanting to acknowledge all parts of them. No matter who I'm working with, it takes a lot of courage for people to ask for support. So I work with a lot of different people that I consider leaders, presidents, partners, parents. And my job, I think, has been to create a safe container to help clients overcome whatever obstacles are getting in their way. And it's sort of like soul work with um, a practical bent soul work with leaders, with a practical vent. I just also want to make it clear that I'm getting something out of this, too. I think that one of the reasons I chose this career to be a listener for a living is to uh, be able to regulate my nervous system, not just to be in co-regulation with other people's nervous systems, I need social engagement I need connection and I think that this is a really healthy way to spend my my time um, to create those connections and go deep and create those meaningful moments so that's sort of why I was called to do this Um, can I tell you a little bit about what I do like the hats that I wear
1: I I definitely want to, to you to tell me a lot about what you do because I think it's what in some ways makes you such an interesting storyteller for this particular kind of story. But before we go there, I just have one question about you um, as a professional listener and mm-hmm. the therapeutic listening. I really like that idea. Uh, And you talking about creating these safe spaces where people can talk and where you can listen. Did you find that a book did something similar? Like is the book itself creating a space like that? or, 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 Or did it live up to that? Was that your expectation to begin with?
2: Yeah, I love that question. So, the book is an invitation for people who can see, for people to first of all see themselves as leaders and then consider what they can do to create a sense of um, um, direction. So, it's sort of like a roadmap where people can enter into any part of the book. I did that on purpose so that they could be curious about different lessons or different qualities that I write about in the book. And then they can be invited to consider where do they live in that? Where do they fit in that? What do they want to learn from that? Can this be useful to them? So there's a lot of repeatable, useful lessons that people can take and create a roadmap of their own. I have a certain... um, not a schedule, but a certain pattern that I think is really helpful in terms of how I organized the book and structured it. But this is for anybody to see themselves as a leader and learn some skills that they might have and they might want to expand or that things that they just never thought about and they can consider how to develop them.
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Your background Um, and you've talked a little bit about or alluded to and also when I was advertising this uh, talk uh, I talked a little bit about these different roles that Mm -hmm. you play so Mm -hmm. tell us what they are
2: uh, and what they mean great well um, I work in three professional fields that aren't often mentioned in the same sentence and all of them have given me a unique perspective on leadership and its potential so the first one is as a therapist. So I'm a family systems therapist. That's my training and my approach. And that really means a psychological practice that studies and treats families as whole systems of interrelated parts. So everything is connected. And when I make interventions into the family system, I'm always understanding that each member is participating in a dynamic living system. You change one part of the system, one member leaves, one member arrives, and everything has to reorganize itself so that the system can be healthy and harmonious and stable. So that's one. The second hat is as a management consultant and I specialize in organizational development and that has to do with the practice of effecting organizational change so that the culture and climate can support and engage the people who work in it. So organizations are really collections of people. When I go into a company, I see the people who work there. Also, a living system of interconnected parts that all together can contribute to the success or failure of the business or the not-for-profit. So when I make interventions, I consider the people in the system, and I have to understand where they're functional and where they're dysfunctional, so that I can help them affect creative, so I can help them make creative and effective change. And then the third hat that I wear, is it's called a family enterprise advisor. So that's fancy for saying family business. Um, and that really offers me an unparalleled example of where the dynamic systems of home and work come together. And I'm not sure if your listening audience is aware that two-thirds of businesses worldwide are family businesses, and 50 to 60 percent of private sector GDP in Canada and the U.S., are made up of family businesses, family owned and operated businesses. So by definition and moniker, this is the literal marriage of family and business, two separate but connected systems where the peaks and valleys of the emotional, the operational, the aspirational, and the strategic elements of this really complicated and complex system come together um, in relationships. And so this is when home and work really need to function well. And so I wear these three hats. I see the world as a system, social systems, family, community, professional, work, and how they all really, really parallel, have a lot of alignments and parallels. I want to tell you what I've learned about these three systems coming together for me and why I think this is why I decided to write the book. It's become increasingly clear to me that what I do at the micro level when I'm counseling individuals, couples, and families has a significant overlap or what I call crossover with the macro level of my work, which is consulting with leaders in private sector, public sector, not-for-profit organizations, and I coach them and their leadership teams. So I sort of think of myself as helping small struggling families and large struggling families, because organizations are like large struggling families sometimes. And so this is even more apparent to these connections, these crossovers, when I think about families who are in business together. And I've learned that there are many not-so-hidden connections between leadership in the boardroom and leadership in the living room. And the qualities and actions that my counseling clients take at home, and this could be unwitting, um, resemble those embraced by my coaching and consulting clients who lead at work. So there's leadership happening in both of those, in the workplace and the home space. And this really challenged my and I think other people's Notions of this dichotomous split or separation that has to happen between who we are at work and who we are at home and how we show up in those different places, I have a much more nuanced understanding of the alignments and the connections between those two worlds. And I think, especially in small places, small communities, there's this notion that we're supposed to show up differently in the two territories of our lives. So in order to be successful... We have to split our role, and I think that ends up with us having to split ourselves. And I'm not, I I don't buy that anymore. I do not think that we are a chest of drawers where we open up different compartments to live different aspects of ourselves um, and show like who we are in one position and what we do in another. I think this dual identity ethos is forced on us by the socialization, and it's a myth, And I actually think that it's a dangerous myth. And I think the antidote is whole and integrated leadership, which is really what this book is about. Um, I don't know about you, but managing separate identities doesn't serve me well. I don't think it serves any of us well. And it derails our ability to actually be gifted, skillful leaders in all the domains that we inhabit. And this separation of selves philosophy, I don't know where I came up with this, but it just seems like we're we're separating ourselves, can lead to, when you think about it, internal chaos, and even fragmentation, a state um, of dividing into pieces and feeling like we're broken apart. And this paradigm of either or thinking, I'm at work or I'm at home, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong all of those sort of binaries that are um, difficult to separate, right? Like it's, 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 it's really an on-off switch. I think it's restrictive and disconnecting and a trap that too many people in leadership fall into. So I've shifted the paradigm to something more holistic um, that I think allows everyone to be more psychologically stable, and congruent and fully integrated in all the parts of themselves. So undivided and messy and beautiful and textured and complex. And that means that we are both and. And in the work that I do, I'm bringing those things together. So think about the challenges and opportunities of becoming an entrepreneur. The fear and the excitement of starting a business or starting a family or falling in love, Um, the feelings of power and fear and excitement and loneliness in leading a company or parenting children, leading a family, all along that continuum of human experience. And I think that we can have success at work and harmony at home being the exact same person.
1: When you say it, it seems just so obvious. Not just only does it seem obvious, but it feels a little bit like how would anyone ever almost like have the audacity to work with uh, an organizational div- you know, development person or to be in a family business and work with uh, a specialist with family enterprises that didn't have that background. I mean, it just seems so like, of course, but I wonder if it is, but we also all know, I think, mm-hmm. or we think we know maybe mm-hmm. examples of kind of genius you know the entrepreneurial genius right like they're out there they're starting these massive bu- businesses they're mm-hmm. worth millions and billions um and and what we know of their private lives which how can we ever really know they seem like a mess oh i know okay yeah right. you, you do know <laughs> so I, like i mean i guess what i wonder is like um one is is that really happening are there examples of people who truly are fantastic leaders in one way and are they having to give up being so fantastic in the, the business world if they're going to also not suck in the home world or or can they actually be geniuses in both and when you take someone who is a genius in the work like who's recognized as a genius in like making money in the business world do they want help in the other realm do they come to you like you know when do they ever seek your help when they're doing well in the business world uh, to become a leader in that other realm
2: um I think most people who are geniuses in one realm have the ability to be geniuses in the other, but i don't think that they spend the time or the or have the intention to do the work to bring those those pieces of their lives together. Most of the people that I work with who are really successful in one aspect of their life um, one system of their lives. Um, probably uh, come to see me because it's not working in the other place. Um, I think that every so how, how do I frame it? most people are um, in relationship. A lot of people have families. And they run successful organizations. And it doesn't even have to be a business. It could be an environmental organization, a not for profit. It could be a community organization. It could be um, a huge business or a small business, like a, a mom and pop store. I think that the two hardest jobs in the world for everyone are leading a team and raising children. And a lot of people have the two hardest jobs in the world at the same time. Um, and so a great leader in the boardroom and the living room, I can't swear on this show, can I? Preferably not. Preferably not. No. They they really get their act together. Um, they show up the same way regardless of the social system that they're in. And I do think it's possible, which is why I wrote the book, because I think that how you show up as a leader in the business world that makes you so dynamic and so successful, those qualities and those skills can be transferred and are essentially the same as what they can do at home. But I don't know if they, can, if they feel that they have the energy or the time to be able to do that. I work with a lot of people who aren't just over-functioning, over, who aren't just high-functioning, they're over-functioning. And so they burn out, they lack resilience and energy to take to the other parts of their lives. And unfortunately, their living room life usually doesn't get as much energy as their boardroom life. This is a business book, but it's also um, a a sort of, I I don't consider it self-help, but I think it's a building awareness book for leaders to take more personal accountability to take all their gifts and all their magic and move it throughout all the social systems that they that they um, participate in
1: so and I have so many questions, so I'm trying to stick to <laughs> to a list, but as you know, I like to go where, where I'm going. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to uh, go a little bit deeper into what you've already touched on about who is a leader and mm-hmm. this idea that I think, um, I feel I feel runs, at least in myself, a little bit of a prejudice maybe that runs in myself, but I also think I see in the world this idea that some people are just more natural leaders. And I know you're going to tell us that it's not just that leaders are born, that they can also be made. Mm-hmm. But I I want you to convince me more that that is true. And I also want to just recognize that there's something really true when you say that this book is an invitation that I opened this book up so and read it uh, from cover to cover so I'd be ready for mm-hmm. our Conversation today. And the first thing I want to say about it is that it truly immediately started engaging me and making me realize that um, by not recognizing ourselves as leaders because we have the simple act of being a parent or Mm -hmm. of being an accountant that works for ourselves, Mm -hmm. because we like often do not feel as leaders when we're in those humble roles. I've seen in myself then this idea that I, because I'm not a leader, I don't have to build my leader skills, right? Like, well, that's for those important people who are doing important work, who are big and known. But it's like, it's the sweet, humble invitation of this book to be like, no, you are a leader. And then if I am a leader, it's also an invitation to become better, to become more skilled to start thinking about whether I'm showing up actually the way I want to. So I really appreciate the invitation nature of that. And I'm wondering if you can break through that little bit of prejudice that I'm still holding on to that some people just seem like they're born as naturals, while it feels really hard for other people.
2: Listen, I have been working with people um, for three decades. And I think that all people who run organizations, small or large, and run families, small or large, deserve a medal for just getting up out of bed. So this book is coming to me from the perspective that I believe that all those people actually have leadership skills. Um, And I don't care if they're billionaires or they make uh, very little money. I think that what my clients have taught me over the years, the fancy ones and the not so fancy ones, is that there are certain qualities that they possess that have allowed them to reach success at work and harmony at home. That's how I define it, and so I want to share the lessons that they've given me. That I mean. I have looked for themes in the stories that they have told me for 30 years and they've given me a roadmap. They've given me the qualities that over and over repeatable allow for people to show up as leaders. And that's how I define them and that's how I work with them. And I don't care what anybody else has as their definition. I have my definition now because my clients have shared how they behave and what they've done to me understanding what success looks like in leadership. I actually know what bad leadership is too. I could write a book about that, but I chose not to do that. I really wanted to focus on the positive and invite people in to explore where they live in that positivity and maybe give them some ideas of, oh, I never thought about this as a quality, but. Um, I've named them. I didn't, you know, I want to make it clear that I didn't go online and Goog- I, I didn't go to Google and type in leadership qualities and then eight the top eight came up. I found them in my clients over a long time. And I found them in my clients who are parents and who are in relationships with other um, adults and who run huge organizations and tiny organizations and who are also entrepreneurs and run their own organization. But these Patterns started coming to me, and I started realizing we can all do this. And I, I want to address your question about are leaders made, not born, or born, not made? Let's get real. There are some people who have a head start. There are, and they show up um, starting from when they're kids to have lots of interest and lots of drive and lots of verve and juice, and they make a lot of stuff happen. And yes, Not everybody is like that, but I know tons of introverts who are fabulous leaders and never had to make anything happen because they were too shy to do it. But they found themselves in context where people were caring about their opinion. They had a technical skill that allowed them to offer great advice and good solutions. And with practice and using these qualities and working really hard at it, they blossomed into being, you know, really effective leaders. So I don't know, nurture, nature, I think it's a little bit of both. What I care about is what can I do to share with potential readers on what they can do to feel great about their leadership in every dimension of their life.
1: So with that invitation, can you talk to me a little bit about these eight qualities? What are the qualities of of great leaders
2: and maybe explain a little bit about each one. Great, so I divided the book into two parts. The first is the qualities of leadership, which I'll talk about now, and then um, the lessons of leadership. So the qualities is really the how. How do people show up? What kind of behaviors do they use in their leadership in the boardroom, in the living room? So I came up with what I consider to be The most salient and the most uh, required for all people in a leadership position. And the first one is resilience. I'm going to be really brief because I go into more detail in the book, um, which has to do with responding rather than reacting. When we are nourished, when we have energy, we are able to manage our our health, manage our mental health in ways that allow us to be more effective. I am really interested in supporting people to feel high energy versus depleted and exhausted. And there are certain conditions that allow for those um, responses. I um, have exercises in the book around how to become more resilient and less exhausted for leaders. So that's the first one. And I always put, I mean, I put it first, because if you don't have resilience, you can't do any, you can't use or develop any of the others. So first, cultivate resilience. The second is my favorite word in the English language, which is discernment. And that has to do with paying attention by really listening, asking the right questions to pinpoint problems, understand needs and identify options. Discernment is not decision-making. It's knowing how to choose the right decision. And it has to do with investigating your intuitions and remembering that not everything can be a priority. When you use discernment, you know how to prioritize. So I think that's a really important quality. So think about parents who use that, partners who use that, and presidents who use that. Okay. The third is presence. Presence is about showing up for others, your children, your team, your partner. And it's about creating conversation containers so that people know that when you're with them, they're the only thing you're thinking about. That conversation matters more than anything else. So when I'm with a client, for example, or when I'm with you, I'm not thinking about dinner, I'm not thinking about anyone else, I'm not thinking about a crisis that awaits me, I'm thinking about what is happening here and now with each other. So this is about that 100% attention. It's not just for therapists, it's for everybody. So how do we commit how do we listen? How do we take the pause and ask somebody, tell me more? I've never heard anyone say no to that, in, that invitation. So that's presence. The fourth is to collaborate, collaboration. I think it's very important for leaders to seek support, to be humble, to co-regulate with other people, and to have uh, partners. Leadership is a very hard thing in all worlds. So the best executives I know have really great leadership teams and the best parents I know have a community of other parents in which to uh, rely on. And so I think also um, it's not really collaboration but it's sort of finding external objective support systems so that you don't have to worry about fulfilling their expectations or their projections where you can get a lot of help to, it's lonely. It's lonely to be a parent without, without company. And it's lonely to run an organization. The people I know that have been the most successful have said to me, it's cliche, but it is lonely at the top. So they need collaborators. So collaboration is a really important quality. The fifth is compassion. I think more leaders need to exercise their compassion muscles a little bit more. They're usually so busy that they forget about about this. And for me, compassion is empathy in action. Um, when we're so empathic and it just ends there when we can put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, when we're there too long, it actually activates the pain centers in our brain. But when we can be compassionate and take that empathy and put it into action and say, what can I do? How can I help? That actually is proven to um, activate the dopamine centers in our brain. So if you're stuck in empathy, you got to move to compassion and then you can actually take action. Um, So compassionate leaders are better leaders than than non-compassionate. The sixth is courage. So leaders need, to need the courage to say no. This is hard. It's hard for parents to say no. It's hard for leaders to say no to their team. Um, they need to face and manage conflict. They need to stay curious and concerned and caring. And I, I do have this sentence in the book, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit, which is, if you're in a conflict with someone, then they're in a conflict with you, even if they pretend they aren't. And so leaders are constantly dealing with conflict or potential conflict, and they have to be okay sitting in it and figuring out how to face it. Uh, The seventh is knowledge of self. So a lot of people call this emotional intelligence or social intelligence or relational intelligence. I think it has to do with Um, Being able to ask for honest feedback so that we can know, identify our blind spots and be able to overcome them. We have to be able to read the room. So if we can't read the room until we can read ourselves. So there is work for leaders to to build self-awareness and to learn about themselves and to get, maybe they need to do therapy or they need to have a coach. They need feedback on how they show up. It is very rare for people to have a clear perception of how others perceive them. And so there's that, knowledge of self. And finally, the eighth quality is knowledge of systems. Can I read a quote, um, knowledge of systems? Because I think this quote can say it better than any way that I can say it. And um, this is a quote from one of my greatest teachers and mentors, Jay Lapin. And he says... Families are living, open, and dynamic systems composed of individuals who are connected in special ways that mutually affect one another. They have patterns of relating that are interdependent, complementary, and necessary for carrying out their lives, and they have rules and structures to survive, live, and thrive. Families aren't the only systems that have all that. Companies, organizations, not-for-profits, community groups, all have that. And I think we need to be more attuned to the systemic nature of our lives at work and be really exquisitely sensitive to the systems and the, and the people in them and the interrelationships between the parts that we um, live in. And so for each quality, I'm interested in supporting people to cultivate them. So I have different ideas, different tools, different tricks and, and tips on how people can cultivate each leadership quality. They don't have to, but there's some ideas there if they want.
1: Can you give us an example either of like maybe one of these qualities in practice? Like,
2: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about presence. I know a lot of people who um, are multitaskers. And the, the research proves that, this is the way I put it, multitasking equals mediocrity. Because we can't focus on more than one thing if we're really going to be present. So for example, your kid needs you you're doing something else. You need to stop doing that other thing and focus on the priority who is your crying child, for example. I'll tell you something from my own experience trying to be a leader in being a present leader. My husband used to walk in the door and I would be working away on my computer and he'd walk in the door and he'd say something to me and I would like, uh-huh, hi, or just a sec, or not even respond. And then I realized that is not being present in my relationship. And so we have a rule now that I instituted that whenever he walks in the door, I stop what I'm doing and I am completely 100% attention to saying hello. I think one of my greatest mentors taught me that every relationship is a series of hellos and goodbyes and you have to make every single one count. And when someone is working in an organization and they've got 35,000 things coming at them, they're not going to do any of them well in terms of how they address them and how they solve them. And so having a presence, it's like an equanimity of being, will allow the other person to understand that when they are having a conversation with you, they matter, Because you are giving them all your attention. I talk about in the book, the 73855 rule. So for every message that you give or you receive, you are paying attention to three different things. The words that are being said, the tone they are being being spoken, and the body language in which they are being given. And so, this is always a surprise to people, but um, of the 100% between those, 7% are the words. Now that doesn't mean that, we, that, we, that what we're saying doesn't matter, but it sort of doesn't matter if they're not being said in the right tone and in the right body language. So think about a leader l- saying that they're listening but looking at their phones. Think about um, a parent who says that they're paying attention but is on their computer or in a conversation with somebody else and pretending that they're listening. In a relationship, there's so much going on in the body language that um, you have to be present. So how do you be present? How do you manage your nervous system so well that you're so regulated that whoever shows up in front of you as a follower as a team member, or as a child, or even as, an, as a peer, how can you offer them that exquisite attention?
1: I feel like this is just the tiniest bit unfair, but I, want, I, I need a little bit of therapy right here on <laughs> air around this. So I hear what you're saying. I 100% agree. I'm going to give you a little example from my life. Uh, at one point in my life, I was working in kind of like a co-working space, but it was actually my friend's house. And I would go there, I was writing a book, and I would go there almost every day to like, you know, I rented a room and I just worked in this room. And every time when I would come, they would both come from wherever they were and greet me and then every time when I left, they would both come and say goodbye. And it was ins- like, I was just like, this is insane. Like, <laughs> this is a lot of acknowledgement. I'm basically just a renter in a room. <laughs> but it felt so good. Like, it just felt so like I look forward to that moment. It was just this moment mm-hmm. that I was really seen I was greeted Mm. and I was like said goodbye to I like to this day this is 15 years ago right I remember it's like a highlight Um, and I see that in my own life I'm horrible at this there's so much going on all the time and like, you have kids and you're like working from home and there's all you have your phone. You're always working. You know, your kids are always wanting something. Mm-hmm. We, now we just spent two and a half years all doing everything at home together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the presence really got even further eroded into a society that has super eroded that. As I go to heal some of this. hmm what, like, give me one tangible, like, what do I, what can I do tomorrow? I know that's, I I know, I feel like this is really big, but, like, I am often at my phone, my kids make fun of me. Like, oh, you're not really paying attention. You're on your phone. I mean, I am. They're right. Like, it's horrible. Like, I
2: know it's horrible. I try to be better, and still, I'm doing it. Um, I think a skill that is really helpful is time blocking and sticking to it. Mm. So I time block my work I time block my social, I time block my exercise, I time block my meditation, I time block lunch. I think it's very important that you take, I call them wellness breaks, all day. Like, how do you organize your time? I, I work with a lot of executives who say that's impossible. And I say, well, is, do, when, if you don't have to go to the restroom, do you not go because it's impossible? And they say, no. I said, well, this is part of your biological mental health. And so you have to figure out how discerning you can be with your time and how disciplined you can be to um, follow it. And so I don't believe that people can't figure out how to, spend, uh, how to spend their attention wisely. And so if you say to your kids, I'm going to work for this period of time, and I'm going to close the door, and unless there's a fire, I will be out at this, at this time, and then I'm going to give you my full attention, rather than trying to give everybody everything all the time. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work when you're running a huge organization and it doesn't work when you're running a family business from home during a pandemic. And I think that if people really decided that they were going to commit to this and they practice that discernment and they practice that presence, they wouldn't be brilliant at it right away, but they'd get, they'd get better in, in short order. I just think that people don't take the time to decide that they're going to do this. I, I love that strategy.
1: Thank you so much. And I will say that uh, because of this book, my husband and I were having a conversation about some of these things today. And one of the things that really quickly came out is how we don't time block um, like each other. Right. That's like right. you're so busy. You tie it like you like every person who has a work thing with me. Oh, they're all on my schedule. You know, and as soon as something comes up, like the family, the things that are actually my core values. Like the things I most care about. Yeah. My husband, my children, my immediate, you know, community. Unit, yes. Um, they they it's like they get the least value in my time blocking so this was one of the things too that I just like my husband and I we just time blocked time to talk about our like like our family kind of finances and our like week and our kids and etc so um but I hadn't really thought about it that way but it had been inspired by your book
2: I love that I also think that you need to time block Dates. Dates, yeah. That have nothing to do with finances or your kids or your work life. But that they're just about play and enjoyment of each other. I can guarantee you that every single couple I've ever worked with in my therapy practice, the reason that they're there is that they didn't give each the relationship enough time. And there's only one remedy for that and that is to find the time I believe that every couple should figure out a way to have every Saturday night as date night and even if it means that they're so exhausted from raising two little kids let's say that they go sit on a bench and hold each other's hand and even if they're so exhausted they can't talk it doesn't matter they can just be together That's why I think meetings of leaders, leadership team meetings, where people can talk about what's going on in their leadership life and what they need from each other, that's sacred too. And I think that family time is sacred. And I I would like to say on the radio that the fact that your work people matter more than your home people is not cool. And you got to change that. I'm not available next week, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, and I think that we can do better in all the domains and all those systems if we are present and we say, you have me 100% right now. And then when I'm not here, wherever you are going, they have you 100%. It's less crazy making and it's more leaderly. And
1: so can we can you also give me an example of how some businesses are doing this? Like, I I guess what I mean a little bit is around create time blocking, perhaps um, some of those like play or connection elements, Mm -hmm. because that's another thing that I'm seeing. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's just the time
2: we're in, but it's like play has lost any value or fun. Fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A lot of people aren't having very much fun. But um, what I would like to do is help them create um, structures that allow them to share what's going on for for themselves and talk about what's going on in their non-work life that allows them... Here's an example. So when I work with a lot of organizations, they need a values uh, understanding. They need to name their values and their behaviors, or they need to re visit their values, and one of the ways that they can live them, um, and a lot of times their value is surprisingly fun, is I ask them that at the beginning of every leadership team meeting, who can talk about how they've been living their values instead of just being on their website or on some poster on the wall? How does it become real? And so people talk about what they've done, either at work or at home, in their relationships with their family, or their team, where they've been living fun, or they've been living communication, or they've been living loyalty, or whatever it is, I mean, that might not be like a big laugh, but it does connect people to what means, to what's meaningful for them, to what matters most. Another thing that's very small is I suggest to organizations where everybody is going from meeting to meeting to meeting, and especially if it's on Zoom where their energy is completely zapped by the technology, is there's a new rule that there are no, there's a 10-minute break between every meeting. And I often say, well, listen, if you start 10 minutes later, would anybody die? It's just 10 minutes, and it allows people to stop looking at a screen go outside and breathe some fresh air, make a cup of tea, run up and down the stairs, lie down and close their eyes, whatever it is, I think that builds resilience and that allows for people to, when they get back on screen or when they walk back into the meeting, they are more present to pay 100% attention to that agenda instead of carrying on from the one that just happened. And I I really don't think that it has to be that hard. I don't think people need to restructure and bring in consultants and, you know, reorganize everything in a new software program to be able to just take 10 minutes between meetings and find themselves again and re-energize so that they can be the best leader in the next meeting. I just feel
1: like you heard it here. All right. The consultant just said, you don't need to bring in the consultant. She just no. gave you
2: free, priceless, free advice. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, 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 I don't uh, have a PowerPoint for this. Just do it. <laughs> Make a decision that you and your husband every Saturday night are going to just be a couple. And you can be a couple with other couples. That's fun too. But I'm rolling my eyes because this
1: Saturday night, we're going to be a couple at a meeting. <laughs> I know. Uh, but well, anyway, if we can get there. Now I believe we, we just can. need more restaurants. I believe that you can. <laughs> the world has to meet us halfway. Okay, so I want to uh, shake it off for a second. Let's like, have our moment of laugh because I want to talk about something that's harder to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the role of conflict. Yeah. Uh, you. I love already been taught talk- I've already talked to you two separate sets of friends oh maybe three <laughs> about this line in your book where you say you've already said it here if you are in conflict with someone then they are in conflict with you even if they claim ignorance and I like this whole section this is you it's very small but it's under your um, courage section and you you talk a lot about um, about conflict as the difference between I you know I think like where leaders can really shine yes. and I'm really lucky because I have in my life my partner who is really fantastic with conflict and um, and it's it's an amazing thing to get to have uh, an experience of to a close hand experience of someone who when they find themselves in conflict is able to lean into it and create Mm -hmm. space where things feel really tight yes but when it is conflict in my world i feel very conflict avoidant despite being american and maybe i don't feel conflict avoidant to everyone around me but (laughs) but my experience of conflict as soon as i start to feel it is to want to retreat from it um
2: so you're a fleer
1: I don't, I think I must be a fleer because Mm -hmm. I really just want it to go away Mm -hmm. and I, and I want to pretend that the other person must not feel it Mm -hmm. and all these things. And so, um, so I really loved this part and, um, and I wanted to have a little bit more of a sense of what different versions of healthy responses to conflict can look like and the tools for turning, you know. Like, how? How do we get started when we see that this is an issue in ourselves and we want to lean into it?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, as soon as you have more than two people, more than one person in a room, there's the potential for conflict. Um, So you can't avoid it. And anyone who's in a leadership position has to be able to feel safe enough in themselves and grounded enough to be able to sit in it and face it and do something to move it. Th- move through it, especially if you're leading an organization and if you are running a family. There are some situations where avoiding conflict is a really good idea. Um, things like it, it doesn't matter uh, whether you go, whether you have this sandwich or that sandwich. I mean, when you just, when it's not really that important. Um, when it's none of your business, when it's not yours to get into, you should avoid it. When you don't have the time or the information to deal with it effectively, it's not a good time to get into it. So you should avoid it, but mostly it's not, um, helpful to take that stance in most situations, right? So there's some where it's good, but mostly it's not a great idea. Um, I don't think that you can lead unless you are able to manage disagreements that can move into a conflict state. When I work with families, I mean one glance, one word, one tone of voice can set the whole thing on fire. And so there's a lot of uh, nonverbals that happen in family meetings, family business meetings that can lead to conflict. So All leaders have to be able to show up for it so what does that look like well the first thing you need to do is you've got to figure out how to turn down the heat by buying time to self-regulate because if you are hit if you're being hit in a conflict situation um, by a word or a gesture or an event um, you're going to react And that reaction is probably going to lead to a bad resolution if you can even find one. So I'm talking about self-regulation and maybe your partner's really good because he knows how to self-regulate before he enters into the conversation. So I think everybody needs to take a break and say, there are things that people can say like, this is obviously a thing for you. I I want to deal with it. I need a few minutes and I'll be right back with you and we'll work it out. Or some people can say in a performance feedback session, for example, where you have to give somebody um, bad news on how they've shown up in their performance over the last little while, um, you give them time to take in the information and you set up another meeting and say, we're going to talk about this once you've had a chance to take this in. You know, there's certain, it's a timing thing. Um, and then I think that the concepts and tools to manage, um, manage the conflict, the first one is um, increasing your self-awareness. So what is your conflict approach or style? Are you a seeker of conflict? Or are you an avoider? Most people are one or the other. Very few people are seekers of conflict right? Um, What are the mental models and the assumptions and the stories you bring to every conflict scenario? So in my family, nobody raised their voice unless it was really catastrophic. That was my mental model around conflict. It was very rare, and it was explosive, and then it completely died down, but it was really avoided. Um, I remember going to a friend's house. I was probably 18, 19, to her family's house for dinner. I sat down at the table, and everybody was just screaming at each other and on each other. And nobody could say anything without getting attacked. This was my story. This is my my mental model. And we came out of the dinner. I was a nervous wreck. And my friend said to me, oh, did you have fun? And I said, are you kidding What's going on in your family? Are you always so mad at each other? And she looked at me like I was nuts and said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You were screaming at each other the whole dinner." She said, "That's not screaming. That's having a conversation." So I think that we have to really check our assumptions about what conflict is, and um, how it's how it's is ex- how it's explained or ex breast and i think that we have to really have high self awareness to be good at dealing with conflict and not putting our stories and our projections onto everyone else that's why it's so important to ask really good questions the second thing i think is to be able to analyze conflict and the steps for that are to understand your counterpoint your counterpart's style like this is my family what's going on in their family Just because they're saying something that could be considered conflictual, is it really conflictual? Where are they coming from? Where's my compassion for what's going on for them? What was the context in which they spoke to me in that way? Or they did what they did? How do I understand the system that they're from and the circumstances in which they they performed? The second is to identify the type of conflict. So there are really four kinds of conflict. Relationship, task, process, and status. Now, believe it or not, most conflicts aren't relationship, but they end up in the relationship category. Because the conflict could be about the task. The The organization is going through some kind of change. What what are the actions that need to be taken first? So what are the tasks that need to happen? And some some of the executives might have a different experience of, well, this task needs to be managed first. And the other person says, no, that's not where we need to go. We need to go to another. But it has to do with the task. That's what to do. The process conflict is how to do it. Well, I think that The leadership should take charge, and we should tell everybody what we're going to do. And somebody else says, no, I think we should go to the teams and let them figure out how we're going to deal with the problem. So there's the process conflict. And then there's status, which has to do with power. I'm your father. I'm in charge. I'm running the business. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do well, I'm actually your son, but I'm the expert at this, and you know nothing about this part of the business, so I think I should be the one to make the decision. But what happens is when those pieces, when those kinds of conflicts don't get properly resolved, they all turn into relationship conflicts. Not all conflicts are relational. They just end up there because people don't know how to manage the ones that they are actually in. So that's the second, um, piece, the second step in analyzing the conflict. The third is determining your goal. So most desired. So think about this way when you're in a conflict, this is what I try to do. This is what I help others try to do. Figure out your most desired outcome for yourself, for the person with whom you're having a conflict for your relationship and for your organization or for your family. I want to think about that before I have what I call courageous conversations. I want to walk in knowing my most desired outcome. For myself, it's probably to um, in most of the conflicts I'm in um, to stop feeling like I'm going to explode and that I'm gonna lose something or someone. What I always want for the other person that I'm in conflict with, is for them to have peace and be free of the conflict that is between us. I want them to be well. For our relationship, if I'm in a conflict with someone, my my most desired outcome is that our, our relationship can get back on track, and that we can move forward in, in successful ways and in love and in respect and in connection. And what I want always for um, the system is that it can be healthy and whole and successful and harmonious. But I think that we don't take the time to consider that before we have those conversations. So I think that's a really important piece of analysis. And then the fourth is to be able to pick your option. People don't realize that they have options They can do nothing if it's not going to if it's not going to make a difference one way or the other. If nobody's going to be there to listen, if there's if we have no power, um, we should do nothing because it's not going to it's not going to work. There's addressing a conflict indirectly. This is like the example I give where you're with your daughter and your daughter in law. And your daughter-in-law is doing something to totally piss you off, but you can't tell her. So you tell your daughter about something in context so your daughter-in-law will listen. You can't go straight to the source. You have to be indirect about it. So that's like as a leader, a president in an organization, getting really aggravated about something that a leader did and just talking about it in a very indirect way with the whole group instead of dealing with it directly. Dealing with conflict directly is, I think, a really good mechanism, a really good choice, an option. It's very hard to do, but I think it's the best thing to do. And the final option is to exit the relationship. So that's when um, you know we, we talk about fit. That's when somebody on the team isn't the right fit for the rest of the team or for the person leading the team. Um, that's when people decide that um, after all these years of partnership or marriage, um, they don't fit together anymore. I mean, I think it has to go really far and it's pretty drastic as an option, but I always know that it's an option. You know, when couples come to see me, I am not, uh, pardon the pun, married to any outcome. In fact, I can't have a preference of what happens. I can only help them decide whether they want to move closer together or further apart. But if they choose to exit the marriage, that's up to them. They have to make an informed decision based on lots of consideration and lots of work. But I can't put my assumption and my story and my mental models onto them. Whatever they decide to do, my job is to help them be as respectful and elegant and graceful and kind if they choose to exit and if they choose to work through the conflict, how can they do that with as much grace as possible and deal with the conflict directly?
1: Uh, just when you explain it, it's like there's so much room, right? It opens it up and it starts feeling possible mm-hmm. um, to work through it. And then when you gave that example, I'm wondering about a little bit more about when family enterprises come to you which I just, I mean, it feels like the most complicated of complex organizational so systems. Complex. Is there a different kind of inherent goal that you have when you're working with um, that kind of organizational structure yes. versus a couple? Like, like, is there more of a, we, like, we need this to work because it's a business type yes. thing?
2: Yes. yes, I mean, there's a lot at stake. These systems are highly emotional, private, intimate. It's all about um, the relationships. It's also about how to live in the overlaps between the family circle, the business circle, working in the business, and the ownership circle, owning the business. And so there is a lot of room for misunderstanding and um, tension and lack of clarity so I spend a lot of time with family enterprises, helping them create governance structures and tools and processes so that they can have professional business success and emotional harmony in their relationships, whether they're at work or at home. And it is, it is absolutely without question the hardest work I've ever done and the most interesting Because we're dealing with, you know, professional, personal all the time. And it's impossible to create such rigid boundaries that one does not overlap with the other because we're people, we're not machines. We love each other. I mean, a lot of people who are in family businesses, they love their family members, even if they're driving them absolutely crazy. Um, it just feels like such a rich,
1: <laughs> like, you know. Like so, it was speaking of the richness and the and the stories because this book also has quite a lot of story in it um, mm-hmm. maybe we call it case studies because <laughs> I <do>. I <laughs> it's call professional them case studies. um yes so let's talk a little bit about what's really like it's laid out as the second half but as you've said you can read this book you know kind of in any order mm-hmm. and then this is the the lessons um mm-hmm. the eight lessons for developing one's leadership uh, i'm going to say muscles or acumen um Can you talk a little bit about where these
2: lessons came from Mm -hmm. and then what are the eight lessons? Well, they came from my clients uh, helping me understand over years of consulting and um, counseling and coaching, what is the roadmap to be successful? And I have an order of things that makes sense to me based on what has worked for them. So the first lesson, um, I always start with values. Um, let me just give you some language. Um, the first lesson is all about values. And another way of saying that is knowing what you believe in as a leader. And I think this is absolutely parallel in the home space and the workplace, that if you don't know what you believe in, you don't know what your values are, it's gonna be very hard to lead yourself, never mind anyone else. And I think that most people don't spend enough time articulating that. What matters most to you? I I have a a story about a blended family where um there was a separation, two people who were with in other in other relationships fell in love, and they had to leave those relationships and come together, and they, they both had children, and they had to figure out what their values were as a new family. They had to create those. And I spent a lot of time helping them figure out what they believed in, how they wanted to um, treat each other, how those values allowed them to make decisions about their new blended family. So that's the first lesson. In business and in, in home life, I think it's critical. And I also think it's critical for every leader to figure out what they believe in. And then they take that into their organization and they work with their team for their team together as a collaboration to figure out what, what matters most for them so that they can lead using those values in the organization and lead by example. And it's not even enough to name the values. It's to describe what are the behaviors that allows me to know that we are living those values. Like, what does communication really mean in one family versus one business? How do you describe what communication means in that culture? I think it's a really wonderful exercise and it's so illuminating for people. So that's the first um, lesson. The second is... Uh, around mission, determining your purpose. Um, What is the the, sort of an existential question? What do we do? Why do we do it? And for whom? Who are our stakeholders in the business? Who matters most in our family? Why do we do it? It's not that we you know, make widgets. It's like we make widgets so that our mission can be fulfilled and we do it for who? Like we have to name who we're doing it for. Um, why are we married? A lot of people come to see me because their marriage is in trouble and it's like, well, what's your purpose? What's the mission of your marriage? And they look at me like, I'm nuts. And it's like, well, you have to, it's existential. It's like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Who are you doing it for? Um, The third has to do with vision. um, And I talk about aspiring toward a compelling future. This is the land of possibility. What do we want to become? How are we going to always stay current in our business? How are we going to stay current in our family relationships, in our family's uh, business. That's the third. The fourth is strategy. It's about making a plan and setting the goals to achieve it. I think people have great ideas. I love their ideas. They're so creative and they're so they're so um, inspiring. But how do you make it a reality? So I have a whole um, chapter on what happens when you need a plan and how do you make goals to achieve your plan. And that can be in the business world, it can be in the family, in the, in the home world. I talk about um, this family where the father, out of the blue, um, had a heart attack and died, and there was no plan for his uh, surviving spouse and the kids, and they had to figure out how to move forward one step at a time. So it doesn't have to be a strategic plan of an operating company. It can be, how are we as a family going to create goals and move forward day by day when crisis hits? The, fourth, uh, sorry, the fifth lesson is governance, which is all about creating a safe container. If you have good governance, you don't need a re- revolution. And I think that a lot of families and a lot of businesses are really supported by... Um, This might be politically incorrect, by rules. There's not enough rules, and there's too much assumption. I think that organizations' systems need to be um, a little bit more organized around how they perform, how they operate, how they behave. And there's a lot of structures and processes and systems that are able to support them in getting things done and being effective, And healthy in that, in those actions, you know, lots and lots of assumptions, not really helpful. Um, This is when I work with families in business, I, there's an assumption that everyone can read each other's mind. And that everybody understands what it means to run a family business. Everybody understands what you need to be able to work in it and how much you're going to get paid and um, what performance feedback looks like. And there's no systems in place that will allow everyone to have accountability for that. So there's a lot of entitlement instead of responsibility. And the only way that you can introduce that is by having accountability mechanisms. That's why we have performance feedback in organizations, That's why um, we have meetings. That's why we have shareholders' agreements. Uh, That's why we have bedtimes. Boundaries and limits are good things. They bring people safety in that container. Uh, The sixth lesson is about change. And how to manage uncertainty without losing your center? We are all dealing with so much change now, and it mm-hmm. seems to be getting more and more um, out of control. Like it's just the the pace of change is so rapid. How do we manage change without um, being with, without having a sense of presence and stability? Um, so that's the sixth lesson. The seventh is relationships, which has to do with nurturing and inspiring the best in everyone. So I think every leader ultimately is in the relationship business. I don't care if you're running a multinational company or you're um, raising children on a farm It doesn't even matter. What matters is if you're leading any system, you are in the relationship business. And those connections and those um, deep and meaningful conversations are what is going to keep you successful and keep you um, connected to the people that that are following you. And the... Last lesson has to do with legacy, which is fostering continuity and a well-planned succession. So if you are a president of a company, you you have a legacy to protect and you have a responsibility to bring in a successor who is going to do a great job once you've left. Same thing in family business, which is always really tender because it's very hard for founders of family businesses to let go and imagine that their kid can be responsible enough to take over. There's always a lot of excitement there. And as a parent I mean your children are your legacy So what can you do To create a life for them To give them what they need In a safe container So that they can have The most successful, healthy, happy lives possible So those are the lessons And for each lesson I give um, Yeah, I tell stories Around One from home and one from work and often one from home and one from um, family business that describes um, the actions that leaders take in order to uh, live those lessons well and successfully. And then you also give homework, um,
1: which makes sense because the book is called homework. but. Tell me why. Like, why uh, is there this kind of you know, like the last thing anybody wants
2: is to do homework. Uh, well, so, so here's my thing. Um, leaders don't have time to read. Uh, a lot of people don't read anymore. They scan, they skim, they they look at things online, but they don't actually read. So, this is my way to say. You matter so much that you deserve time to reflect on each of these lessons. And here's an invitation, an offering of some really simple things that you can do to try and cultivate um, these qualities and these lessons in your own life. You don't have to do the homework, but I feel like the homework is saying to leaders, this is a call to action to Use this roadmap to your advantage. And here's some questions for you to think about in your own leadership life. And I think that when people commit to asking themselves these questions, you know, this this homework... Um, I don't have like lines, you don't have to like fill out, it's not a workbook. But I do think it's really important that I want this to be useful and repeatable and active for, for anyone reading this book so that they can actually get something out of it. So the example of you and your partner sitting down and saying, so what what is our vision for this fill in the blank? Like for our life together, for our business, what what do we want to have happen? What is our goal? Why are we doing this? That is music to my ears that you would actually think about doing that. Or, you know, I am burnt out. I've, I've talked to other people who've read the book and said, you know, I'm really on the edge. I have so little energy. I'm just, I'm, I'm depleted. And I did that exercise in the book. And now I understand that I can make some, I I can make some shifts and some changes in order to become more resilient. So I want people to take this away and be able to actually do something with it. um, Because I care and I want them to be well. And I want them to and as you know, you've know, read the book, they're not that hard. Asking those questions, answering those questions aren't that difficult, but it does, it does require some presence and some commitment to one's own accountability as a leader in whatever sphere they're in. We're going to just take a very short break because I want
1: to give you, listener, a chance to call in. You can do so at 250-935-0200 and ask your questions. Don't worry. You don't go straight on air. You talk to me, you talk to Dina, and then we kind of answer you on air. air. So don't be scared. Don't be shy. You can call on to 250-935-0200. And this is basically your chance to get to work with... An expert, a true expensive expert for free. <laughs> so so take advantage of this amazing opportunity on Folk U Radio. Uh, we'll have a little bit of a musical break. And then we'll, uh, besides answering your questions, we'll come back and just give you a couple more examples. And then let you go on your leadership way. Thanks so much for tuning in to CKDZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. And this is Folk U radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM or on the web at cortezradio.ca. This is Folk U Radio. And today we are going deep into leadership and what makes great leaders and how we can develop our own leadership skills. And we are really, really lucky to have the author of the newly released book, Homework, Dina Chachanov, with us to lead us in this conversation. Thanks so much for being here with us, Dina.
2: Hi, Amanda. So glad to be here with you.
1: So um, we kind of answered the already the primary question that was coming in, which was around uh, how this relates to leaders when leaders are, you know, a plumber that's in a one-person business or uh, a parent at home. Um, but I, you know, I, so you know, is there anything else that you want to say about this idea of who gets to think of themselves as a leader?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, anybody who's managing a relationship, I think, Um, because as I said before the break, uh, being a leader means being in the relationship business. And I've rarely met a, a leader who is untouched by the impact that they that their authority has on the people they like, or the, or the people they love. And that's really um, why some leaders have a hard time clearly communicating, making tough uh, decisions, and then ensuring that they stick. So I wanted to sort of share with your listeners what I've learned to be the six most vexing challenges experienced by leaders um, that I've supported. And so I just want to give people a little bit of a... Of a of a hit on that. So the first is determining and then accepting where the authority should lie. Um, often the role of uh, the decision-maker is, is assumed but not formalized and um, I think that politics can make the situation unclear so that the deciders have to shift depending on who's holding the power. I think it's important that everyone knows who the leader is Um, and to not make assumptions about not being in charge or being in charge. So I think that's a challenge, is owning your leadership. The second is ensuring that the the decision makers, the leaders, have the expertise and ability they need to responsibly wield that power. So that means that uh, people should know what they're talking about, and they should... Um, get trained, and they should ask questions, and they should have coaches or therapists, Um, they should be getting feedback, so that they actually have what they need to be responsible in their power positions. The third is embracing the role of being a leader and being held accountable for seeing through on on that job. I know a lot of people who won't take responsibility for owning um, their roles, and I think that we have to embrace them. I think that, you you know, you said who's a leader and who's not. You're, you're a parent. You're a leader. Own it. Um, don't discount your power and your authority to make decisions about other people's lives. It's a good thing that... You have that role. Learn it and take responsibility for doing a great job. You know, live in it. Um, the fourth is balancing the need to control and with welcoming the participation of those who will be impacted by the decisions that you take. So, you need to control the business, you need to control the family so that it doesn't turn into chaos. And you need to embrace others, your employees or your family members, to really participate in the system that you're leading. How do you help kids learn how to make decisions early so that as they get older and become adults, they make really good decisions? How does your staff learn how to make decisions? How do you share that responsibility one step at a time, but not forsaking your power as holding the organization together. Like you don't want to um, let it go. You don't want to pretend that it's not there, but you do want to help other people learn how to hold power as well. The fifth is, yeah, making hard and courageous choices in your leadership and practicing acts of compassion all at the same time. So think about laying off a staff member, or terminating a family member who works in the family business, or practicing tough love with a substance abusing adult child. I mean, you don't stop being compassionate, even though you have to make hard choices. How do you do that in a way that is courageous and loving? How do you put that into practice? This is A real challenge, especially in the family business world, where it's like, it's my kid. I can't fire my kid, even though her actions are taking the business down and there might not even be a business for us to hold on to. It's so challenging to make those hard decisions and do it with love. I'm sure you do that as a parent every day when you have to say no to certain things in a really kind way, even though it's going to be really hard for somebody to hear, for your kid to hear. And the sixth is proactively developing those processes and those structures and those policies before the problems brew and the crises do lead to revolution. This is when The monster in the house becomes the child because there are no rules and no boundaries and no guidelines in which to behave. This is when um, there's total chaos and anarchy in the company because there are no systems, there's no policies, there's no procedures. And even if you run your own business, you still need those systems to be effective and you need to be able to tell your customers how it is that you operate so that they understand your leadership and what they can expect from you and what you can expect from them so i think that those if you can address those challenges i think your leadership journey will be um, more harmonious and actually more successful
1: I'm really inspired, um, and I've already read the book, and I'm still even more inspired. Uh, I, I feel like everybody needs this book, and so if they're thinking the same thing, I know that they can run out right now and get a copy for themselves at Hollyhock, uh, I assume at Marnie's, and where else, if they're listening further afield and they want to go get this book, where can they get it?
2: Well, online, at, at their favorite retailer... Uh, Amazon.ca or Bards & Noble. It's all um, available, according to my publisher, it's available on all in all online bookstores. So all you have to do is um, go there. Uh, you can Google my name. You can search for homework, how to be a leader in the boardroom, in the living room, and you will definitely find it online. And that's Dina Chachanov.
1: And Dina is D-E-E-N-A um probably if you look up homework and dina you're going to you're going <laughs> to as a book you'll find it um and i i just want to also point out that there are people who are going to read this book um and they're going to think actually i need dina <laughs> i need more <laughs> of her and i need her kind of uh expertise to lead me through mm-hmm. this challenge this problem to grow my business to my organization etc um are you still available for, for doing uh, you know, organizational development work, um, family enterprise work, mm-hmm. or family therapy work for those people who want more of you?
2: Thanks for the question. So the, the, my immediate answer is, I'm available as long as I'm still resilient. So I have a motto, um, sort of a, a principle that I follow, which is that if anyone's going to go down, it's not going to be me because I have to be there to um, support other people. So I have to take really good care of myself. And if I have time and availability, I would love to hear from your listeners. And all they have to do is go to my website, com. And send me an email through there and um, we can talk about their needs and if I can be of service to meet them. It's been wonderful. Amanda, (laughs) thank you so much for all this time. I've never had such a long and intensive interview in my life. And I feel so grateful to you for offering me this opportunity. What a wonderful invitation. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you for coming and doing this little class for
1: Folk You. Thank you listeners because it only happens because of you and a special thanks to all of our favorite community radio station. You're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM cortezradio.ca and this has been Folk You. Until next time. <laughs> That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's f o l k u.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ eighty nine point five FM Cortez Radio.ca
0: little brains almost always got something lame it's got to say it's embarrassing all the stupid things i can